I think one of the most powerful weapons that a human being can have, a Christian can have, in their pursuit of the Lord is a united heart. Uh, There's many things that I could talk about that are great weapons for a believer to have. A prayerful life, a life of service, a life of generosity, a life of learning and Bible reading and devotion. A lot of different things, but over the years what I've discovered in myself and in the lives of hundreds of other people that I've had the chance to minister to is that if the heart is divided, it's almost impossible for a person to advance. It's almost impossible for progress to unfold. The heart has got to be a united heart. A couple of biblical phrases come to mind. You might remember in James chapter 1, when James begins unfolding his letter, he talks to the church about falling into various trials and counting them all joy. But one of the things he says in conclusion to that little section is that we, when we come into trials, we should pray about those trials to get wisdom from God about the trial. Sometimes it'll be a prayer for escape, but a lot of what he says there is pray for wisdom as you're in the trial. But he talks then about those who will pray that prayer with no real belief that God could give them wisdom in that trial, that God would not answer that prayer. And he says that person is a, this is the phrase, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I've never heard anybody who says, that's one of my goals. That's what I want to be. I want to be a double-minded person, unstable in all my ways. No, we want to be singularly minded. Listen to this prayer from Psalm 86. Ask yourself if you could pray this prayer or would love to pray this prayer before God. I would encourage you to do so. It's Psalm 86, verse 11. It says, teach me your way, O Lord. That's a good prayer to pray. Teach me your way, God. I want to hear it. That I may walk in your truth. That's great. You know, this is why I want you to do this in my life so that I could walk in your truth. So teach me so I can walk in your truth. But then he goes on to say, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's, it's like the prayer, the psalmist is, as he prays, going, God, I want you to teach me so that I can walk in your ways. But here's the big obstacle. If my heart is not united before you, I know that there's no chance. I'm not going to obey you because I'll have a divided heart and I'll wander from you in your truth. So unite my heart to fear your name. In our passage that we just read this morning, what we're dealing with is a nation that's divided, right? You have David brought back into Jerusalem and a rebel, this guy named Sheba, he takes a bulk of Israel and pulls them away from David. And David has to go through the process of leading his people back into unity. So perhaps we could take their story this morning as an example for us on how to experience within a united heart in our own lives so that we could make progress, so that we could continue to grow in the Lord. I'll just tell you, as a pastor, you know, a a Bible teacher, a communicator of Scripture, this is like the constant battle 
This is just always the battle. Every sermon, every life group, every discussion, every counseling appointment, every single time, this is always the battle. It's whose kingdom is going to win? Whose kingdom is going to have preeminence? Whose kingdom is going to be followed? You know, and so you might hear me from time to time imploring, and usually if you hear me imploring, this is what it's about. It's about getting to that united heart, a united heart that says, God, I really do want to follow after you. So I want to show you eight things in this story that I think uh, apply to us, okay, that, that might help us in, in gaining that singular heart and avoiding that double-minded uh, way of life. The first thing, number one, comes from verse one, and it's that we should expect division. We should expect division. David here comes back into Jerusalem, and this guy Sheba, he gets his forces together, and you know he starts to spread these ideas. He, he blows the trumpet. He says, we don't have any heritage in David. And really what was happening here was that he was trying to pit all the other tribes in Israel against David and his tribe. It was, it was kind of a way of saying, the tribe of Judah, they get all the goodies. They've got David as the king. He comes from Judah. Things are better for the people of Judah. The rest of the tribes, all of Israel, we don't have things as good because David is our king, but he's from Judah. So things aren't as good as they could be. David's holding out on us. He's not fair to us. In a sense... This is an echo, which, which is very constant throughout all of human history, an echo of what Satan whispered into the ear of Eve when he said, God knows that in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like him. That's why he's withheld this from you. There is something good that you could become, but you have this God who doesn't want to give that to you. And so Sheba is just taking that same age-old lie, and he's presenting it to his people. There's something better for you. There's something greater for you outside of David's kingdom. But this division will be experienced in the heart of every believer. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 7 to bolster this particular point. In Romans 7, verse 21, Paul gave an autobiographical statement about himself, kind of just described his life before God. He's like, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm walking with the Lord, I'm trying to, but this is my experience. And he said there in Romans 7, verse 21, he said, I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So he says, there's this law out there. Every time I want to do the right thing, just super close by, there is also the potential of doing the wrong thing. Don't act so shocked right now. Like you can't relate to this. Like, oh, Paul, what a messed up guy. It's a human experience is what we go through. Okay, so he says there's this law. I want to do the right thing, but there's also the wrong thing that is so readily available to me. But then he goes on to say, for I delight, this is Romans 7, verse 22. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's what he discovered. That his new creature that he had become in Christ, his inner man, or if you're a woman this morning, your inner woman, who you are in Jesus, in Christ, 
that newness, the born again you, he says, there's a, there's a thing in my inner person that wants to do the law of God. I want to be obedient to the Lord. I want to walk with him. I want to say yes to him. You know, when I, when I hear the exhortation go forward, I say yes and amen. I want to do that very thing. But he then goes on to say, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind or my inner person and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What he's saying there is that in his inner person, there's a law that says, I want to obey God, but in my body, this body of flesh, there's this other desire that says, I want to be uh, I, I want to do something other than obey the Lord, this other law waging war against the law of my mind, the part of me that wants to obey him. So all I'm trying to point out here is that when the experience comes in your life where there's that rebel voice you know, that arises, I mean, in my mind, kind of a, what I'm imagining is like a little, little miniature Sheba's this guy's name was Sheba, the, the Bikrite, the, the rebel, you know, that took the people away. I imagine these little mini Shebas just in my heart and in my mind, trying to lead a part of me astray. And when that voice rises up within you, you ought not be surprised. That's really it. You know, you should expect that that divisive word will be there. And part of the reason I say that is because I've watched so many believers who through not expecting it have believed those voices and said that they are right and they are good rather than expecting that that divisive word would be present. But expect it. I remember when I first started walking with the Lord, I was, you know, I've told my story before, I was 18 years old and everything was just kind of, for me it was like a, it was just a massive shift of direction and life. I was Bit, like I said, barely 18, and so I, you know, the, the moment I started walking with the Lord, it was within a couple of weeks. My college ch- plans changed, the direction and future of my life changed, and what I decided I wanted to do was I wanted to go and study at a small little Bible college in Southern California. I had no idea what the Lord was planning or doing. It wasn't like, I want to be you know, a pastor or anything like that. I just wanted to grow in my understanding of God's word. And it was just such an exciting time in my life. You know, all my friends changed, you know, all these believers, all these Christians now, and we're like doing this thing, you know, they called it fellowship. You know, it's like we're like in fellowship together. You know, all this stuff, we're talking about the Bible and we're growing. And, you know, I'd never been with people my age that would, when the music was happening, would actually sing. You know, it was just always like, well, we're not singing, you know, and this was like, man, this is incredible. You know, it it was just an enjoyable kind of thing. And I, and I, and I was, the thing I was mostly just shocked by was I have this love now that I didn't have before. I love people. I love these people. And then a couple months into that, there was this teacher who was also did some administration there in the school, and I had to interact with him on a few different things. But I just, every time I heard him talk, I, I started realizing, I just, I don't like this guy. And it wasn't because he was saying things I didn't agree with. He was like on point and everything like that. It was just like, I did not like his delivery. I didn't like his personality. I just did not like him. And then 
you know, and I was kind of like, I would just kind of dismiss it, like, all right, whatever, you know. But then I, I can remember this one conversation we had where I was sitting there, he was talking with me, and I just thought to myself, like, I, like, really don't like this person. And it kind of shocked me because I thought, what happened to, like, Holy Spirit Nate and, like, loving everybody? Like, I borderline hate this guy right now, you know? But looking back, I realized that should have been no surprise. There's going to be that battle within. That war is going to exist in the life of a believer. Number two comes from verse two. We must keep our eyes on Jesus. We must keep our eyes on Jesus. The tribe of Judah, they made a decision not to follow Sheba, but instead, notice that phrase there in verse 2, they decided to follow their king steadfastly. They just set their eyes upon David and they followed him and we must do likewise. And that same passage in Romans chapter 7 that I just read to you, Paul, after giving that autobiographical statement about his own you know, experience, he said, so oh, wretched man that I am. That was kind of his conclusion. There's just this battle within. This is just a a mess. But then he asked, who will deliver me from this body of sin? It was was the right question. I found that any time a believer asks the question, what can deliver me from this body of sin? They end up barking up the wrong tree. But when we ask who can deliver me, we get to the right answer because Paul went on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So getting our eyes, our minds upon the Lord. You know, sometimes even as you're just going through Scripture, reading the Bible, we'll probably have this experience next Sunday, actually. We'll, we'll read the passage, and there will be parts of what we read that we say, man, how, how can this be? How, how could God act like that, behave like that. And you have to, even in a moment like that, although there's good answers and you need to kind of walk through it and be taught through it, you also have to fix your eyes upon the cross of Christ. What do we really know of God? Well, that's the ultimate revelation of the character and the nature of God, looking at Jesus dying upon the cross for the sin of the world. So we must set our eyes, set our minds upon the Lord. But we live in a world that's just so loud, so noisy. And I believe that much of that noise is an attempt to get us distracted from Jesus himself, from his gospel, from the Lord. I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and you you ever had the experience where you have like a favorite band that you forget about? Well, I, I had kind of done that, and it had been like a few years since I had really listened to this particular band, and so and I started re-listening, and I thought, oh man, they're so good. And I knew that a friend of mine liked these guys too, so I, I said, hey, you know, I started listening, and he's like, oh, cool. I said, man, this guy's voice is just so incredible. I just feel ashamed even trying to sing along with him. You know, it's just so like, it's just in another stratosphere. And he said, oh, yeah, that reminds me of a time where I was at a concert of his, and because he has one of those really unique voices, he, he, he right before he sang one of his trademark songs, he just quietly said to everybody in the audience, hey, a lot of people have traveled a long way to come to this concert, 
and a lot of them really want to hear this next song, so my request is, could none of you try to sing along with me <laughs> in this next song, you know? Because, I mean, if you've ever been to a concert, you're like, oh, I want to hear this, and they just got somebody just, oh, man, you know, you, thank you, you know, that was a blessing. And it just, when he said that, it just made me think, you know, there are those times in our lives before the Lord where we need to hear only him. We need to hear only the Lord and just get our minds fixed on him again. All right, now, number three, I told you I have eight, so let me pick this up a little bit. And I don't have one for each verse, but the third one does come from verse three. So, But I didn't want to avoid this whole portion where David goes home and he takes these 10 concubines and he finds a home for them and he feeds them till the day of their death and he does not know them romantically, physically. This reminds us of some of the uglier parts of David's nature and character. And it also reminds us of the roughness and the crudeness of that time period biblically. Uh, But what was happening here real specifically was that David... You might remember when he sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet confronted him, one of the things that God said through Nathan was that before all of Israel, one of David's neighbors and a family member, someone from David's own house, would lie with David's wives in the sight of all of Israel. And when David fled, these women remained in the palace and Ahithophel, David's former counselor, advised David's son, Absalom, to take these women and put a tent on the roof of Israel and defile these women sexually in front of all of Israel as a way to claim power for himself. It's a gruesome, ugly moment. These women have been shamed uh, very publicly. Anyways, David comes home and he, he takes these women and he begins to provide for them and care for them. And what, what I wanted to just kind of point out about this is that in kind of running through all the different scenarios of, of what he could have done, to me it seems that when David does this particular thing, the way he does it, it's a, it's a way for him, because he knew full well that th- that had been partly the judgment of God upon his life. For me, it reads as a man who is taking responsibility for the horrible thing that unfolded because of his decision. Not only the decision, first of all, to even accumulate a harem in the first place, but then what happened to them as a result of his own rebellion against God. And with the decisions he's making, it's like, I think this is as close to confronting it as he could have gotten in that age and in that culture. What I wanted to say, number three, is that if you want to have a united heart, you must take responsibility for your sin. If, okay, the word soteriology, it's the study of salvation. If your soteriology is almost exclusively wrapped up in the singular word forgiveness, you have a shallow soteriology. 
because the Lord wants to do more than forgive you of your sin. He wants to cleanse you of your sin. He wants to remove it practically, experientially from your life. He wants to sanctify and grow you. He wants to bring reconciliation into your life with people that you were at odds with previously. He wants to do more than just forgive. That is beautiful, and we celebrate it, but it is the tip of the iceberg of what God in the New Testament and the gospel wants to do with your sin. He wants to address shortcomings and enable reconciliation. He wants to really get to the very root of the issue in your heart and in your life. And it's beautiful when somebody takes responsibility for their sin. And I had an experience recently, because I've kind of noticed it's not very common in, amongst believers, amongst Christians, for believers to apologize. It's just always struck me as something really odd. I grew up in a household where we were told to, to apologize all the time. You know, when we did something wrong, hey, you need to apologize for that, you know. And it's surprised me how rarely I've witnessed that happen amongst adult believers. Anyways, I had an experience recently where uh, a buddy and I, we just had a, we had a thing, you know, it was, we, we, were, we loved each other and everything, but it was just a hard conversation. And I prayed about it for a period of time, like, Lord, was there something there? Did I cross the line? Did I, is, do I need to? Is there something I need to confess, something I need to repent of? And quite often there is, and I'll go and I'll deal with that, but I, I was fairly certain. I think I walked through that particular conversation well and in the spirit and everything. And he came to me and he said, hey, I wanted to reach out to you. I wanted to apologize for the way I handled that. That wasn't, that wasn't right. I wanted to apologize for that. And I was looking at it. It was on my phone. I was looking at that. I was like, wow, there it is. That's cool. It just felt like we are, we are so much more unified than before. We can walk forward now together. And I asked him, I said, was there anything that I did that you, that you would have thought I should apologize because I've been searching my heart about it? He said, no, absolutely not. Nothing. Let's move forward together. And so to take that responsibility, I think is really important. Okay, number four, if you want that unified heart, you've got to expend some energy to get it. And for this, I wanted to point out this guy, Amasa. He's the new general of David. David sends him out. He's like, wow, there's a revolt. Sheba has run away. He's pulled all these people with him. We need to deal with it. And we need to deal with it now. Amasa, go get your forces. And Amasa just kind of lazily strolls out of there. It says in verse 5 that he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. The idea is that there wasn't a lot of urgency with Amasa. It was a very slow response to his king. And so David's hand was forced and he had to go to Abishai, who then went to his brother Joab, and they had to go out and get their troops for Amasa and really kickstart this campaign to reunite the kingdom. Look, some energy will have to be expended to develop that unified heart. You might remember in the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote to seven different churches, and the last church he wrote to was the church in Laodicea. He said to them, with a real stern word of correction, in Revelation 3, verse 15, he said, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. 
Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, in Laodicea, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about because they didn't have a water supply inside of their city. Their water supply primarily came from a city called Hierapolis that was five miles away from their city. And Hierapolis received water from a, uh, a hot water spring that came out of the earth. You know, So the water would come out boiling. But they had built a series of, you know, for them, what was modern, but canals and pipes and all of that, to travel the five miles to Laodicea. And by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was no longer boiling hot, but neither was it refreshing and cool, like drinking from a cool stream. It was lukewarm water. So everybody in Laodicea, you said, lukewarm, and they're like, we know all about that. It's terrible here. The, the one thing that we just don't like here is the lukewarmness of the water. And Jesus touched on that with that church. He says, look, I, you know, I don't want a tepid group. You know, I'd rather have you hot or cold. If you're, if you're hot, I can direct you. I can point you. I can say, do this, and you'll do it. I can, I can use you for my honor and glory. And if you're cold, then you're closer to being so fed up with life that you will return and walk with me. But that lukewarm middle ground, Jesus said, I just, I just don't like that. That's not what I want. You know, you could picture this with like athletes, for instance. You know, if an athlete is in their home arena or at their home field or, or something like that, the crowd cheers for them. Athletes love that. But if they're a visitor and the crowd is rooting against them or booing them or jeering them or something like that, there's also a little part of any good athlete that says, you know, I prefer the cheering, but I also kind of get a little bit riled up and excited with their passion against me. I'm going to prove them wrong. But you know what athletes would hate? An arena filled with people just totally quiet, just on their phones, just kind of looking around. It just would give everybody the creeps, like, what is going on here? And the Lord desires that fire from our lives. We've got to fan the flame. We've got to, to, to continue with the Lord, to ask Him to help us to be uh, fervent for Him. We need the help of His Spirit in this. Now, number five, we have to remove distractions from our lives. We have to remove distractions from our lives. And we see this when Joab comes out, and the, the story's pretty gruesome. It's hard to pick it up in the way our English translations translate it, but it appears that what happened was Joab had uh, made his armor in such a way that his sword was kind of loose, so that if in a pinch he could kind of like shake his sword free and it would fall to the ground like it was an accident. So he comes up to Amasa, and his sword falls out accidentally, and he picks it up, and kind of the idea is, hey, like you saw, it was just an accident. It just kind of fell out of the sheath. I didn't draw it to like get into battle or something with you. It just kind of accidentally fell out, and so he picks it up, and Amasa is supposed to think, oh, it's just, you know, he just dropped it or whatever. And then Joab reaches up and grabs Amasa's beard and kisses him. And then with his hand on the sword, he 
pierces Amasa, and you have to love the description. It says, and all his entrails came out. And then they take him, and he's on the side of the road. His body's on the side of the road. And Joab's young man is like, let's go. Let's follow Joab. Let's follow David. Let's go. And they start going, but everybody stops at Amasa's body. They kind of slow down. We totally know what this is like. There's a car accident on the side of the road, and what do we do? We just slowly, what happened? You know, everybody else in front of us, we're like, speed up. Why do you have to look? This is so dumb. Why are we slowing down? Then we get up there. Well, it's my turn now. I get to kind of, (laughs) this is my chance to see. So then they realize this is slowing everything down. They put a blanket over his body. They set him off to the side. You know, he'd be buried later. And to me, this speaks to us of the importance of setting aside distractions that would keep us from our progress with the Lord. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, since therefore... We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love that he writes it in that way. Let every weight and sin. There are some weights in your lives and in my life that are not sins, but they're weights nonetheless distractions nonetheless that keep us from really having that united heart before the Lord. All right, now the story goes on and they all find Sheba. He's in this town called Abel. We read this. They're, they're building a siege mound against it. They're about to knock the door down. They're, you know, Sheba's in there. He's sequestered. He's closed off and And uh, this woman, she's a wise woman of the city, she comes out and she asks, hey, is Joab, can I have a conference with Joab? So Joab comes out, he's like, it's me. She says, look, this city, I don't know if you know this or not, but this city was the kind of city that used to be filled with incredible counselors. They used to come here and ask for counsel. She said, I'm kind of a descendant of that group of people. And this city is an old city in Israel. It's part of the heritage of God, and you're about to wipe out a town like that. So she uses the word three times with Joab, listen. She says, listen. Just listen. And he says, I'm listening. So then, you know, she says, what's what's up? You know, what's, what's going on? And he tells her the story about Sheba, and she says, well, if I, if I deliver him to you, will you end this? And he says, yeah, sure. So she says, okay, well, we're going to throw his head over the wall. And so she goes in, and she convinces all the elders there in the city, this is for the betterment of all the people. One guy's got to go down so that we can all live. Who's the guy? Sheba. So they take Sheba. They cut off his head. It's gruesome. This is the Old Testament. Welcome to it. But... They take his head, they throw it over the wall. And I don't know how Joab did it. Maybe he sent somebody to like go identify, like double check. Are you sure that's Sheba? You know, they hold up the head. Yeah, that's him. And then they go away in peace. What I wanted to say here 
was that if you really want to have a unified heart before God, you must show no mercy to the rebel within. You must show no mercy to the rebel within. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now when Jesus said that, we understand two specific things. We understand, number one, that he's speaking in hyperbole. None of his disciples applied this in a literal kind of sense, dismembering themselves in any way whatsoever to try to deal severely with sin. We understand that what he's saying is you've got to be a very aggressive with this stuff because it just kind of creeps into your life. It just kind of slowly seeps into life. So you could have, you know, you could have a woman who has never touched a drink a day in her life, and then she has a child, then has another child, and all of a sudden wine becomes her best friend, but a little bit too much so. And it just creeps in slowly but surely to kind of become that thing that overcomes us. And Jesus is saying, and I think David's life is showing us, that when sin begins to arise in the heart, we want to be very severe with it. But the other thing that this shows us is that even though we're to be severe with it, we're also to really ask the question, where is the real problem? Is it my hand? Is it my eye? Do I need to pluck my eye out, my hand out? The the reality of the human condition is that all of us can sin quite proficiently without eyes, ears, mouths, hands, feet. We really don't need any of them to sin because it can all just happen right here, right here. So how can I cut that off? I can't. I need the Lord. I need to walk with the Lord. I need to continually avail myself to him so that he can deal with that innermost part of myself. All right, now finally, the last thing is that you, you see there at the end, David had a new team. He's got Joab and Benaiah and Adoram and Jehoshaphat. This whole team is listed. These people are his cabinet, and it's different than other cabinets that he had previously during his reign. So it's kind of an updated group. And if you want a unified heart, you're going to have to establish a new order in your life. You're going to have to build a new team of people around you friends and counselors and teachers and leaders and a new spiritual family that will uphold you in this new pursuit. Otherwise, the old team is bound to get in your ear and pull you away from what the Lord has for your life. So again, like I said, this is pastorally one of the subjects that is just constantly there. What kingdom is going to reign supreme in the individual hearts of God's people. Let's allow the Lord to, by His Spirit, work well in us so that we can have that united heart. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey Podcast. 
Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.